0: John chapter 5, tonight, John chapter 5, my goal is to be done in 30 minutes. Two reasons. First, you're sitting on stone. (laughs) These are 20-minute chairs. Second, some may want to go and catch fireworks. So uh, hopefully I'll be done talking by 7, we'll do communion, and you guys can go. So this might be the best church service you've ever been to. (laughs) Alright, so John chapter 5 tonight. And in this gospel, we've been looking at live eternally. And I'm going to read from the bulletin where John, it says that John writes his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now this life is zoe in Greek, z-o-e. It differs from bios life biological life. Zoe life is God's life. It is the kind of life that lives forever. It never decays. Though originally assumed to be something attainable only in heaven, John dares us to find that life in Jesus today. This is the life God wants us to live right now a piece of himself within us, a bit of heaven on earth before Jesus returns. Eternal life is not merely life after death, but also life before death. And that's why as we go through John, we're looking at live eternally. Now we can have that eternal life, that Zoe, God begotten life in us. And we're going to see this pop up, of course, as it does everywhere in John, in chapter 5. So let's go ahead and start reading. John 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there were three feasts in which the Jews went to Jerusalem. There was Passover, there were tabernacles, and then there was Pentecost. Uh, Those are the three feasts that they usually made pilgrimage to Jerusalem on. We don't know which one. John just says a feast. And Jesus, being a Jew and part of Judaism, goes to Jerusalem. Now, in verse 2, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, what comes next And verse 4 is in the New King James, but is absent from many other translations, because it's believed that these next words were added by a scribe trying to explain uh, some, uh, a legend or superstition that the Jews of the time believed in. So I'll read in my footnote. Um, it, it continues and says, Waiting for the moving of water, verse 4 For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. And then in verse 5 One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years, that's the number whether this is significant to interpreting the passage or not that's the number of years that Israel wandered in the wilderness now they were in the wilderness for 40 years, right but it took them 2 years to get up to the promised land which when they got there they decided, nope, the giants are too big, we want to not go in there And so God then set them on a 38-year death march until the next generation was ready to go in. So whether or not that is meant here in John's writing, we just know that 38 years has that symbolic reference in Scripture. So maybe this man is a symbol of someone who's been wandering and not able to find what he's looking for. But notice also that we see here the scene. It's the sheep gate, and there's a pool, and there are five roofed colonnades. So you have this pool with a lot of uh, shelter, a lot of shade, some colonnades, some roofs going around it. And the sheep gate, we know, is at the northern end of the Temple of Israel. And it was believed that this pool was used for those who were bringing sheep and other animals to the Temple to be offered up. Uh, before they were sacrificed, the sheep had to be purified, so they'd go through the this pool, get a nice scrub, and then go up into the temple. But because of the water, and because of the vicinity towards the the worship place where all the generous people go, the temple, and because there's shade with the colonnades, a lot of people who had infirmities, illness, disabilities, congregated in this area. In some ways, what you can imagine is an ancient skid row in this setting. This is where there's a lot of need and a lot of needy people hang out because it's shady. There's water and well, this is also makes it so that you wouldn't find a righteous person or an upper class person. They would never set foot here. Yet Jesus is here. And in his first trip to Jerusalem, we saw in chapter 2 that he went to the temple, he cleared it out then. This is his second trip to Jerusalem, and he doesn't go to his father's house, he goes to this pool. Not the religious temple, the pure and clean place, but the place of the invalids, and the homeless, and the down and out, and the unwanted, and the disab- those that have disabilities. He goes there, but is he any less at his father's house? To Jesus, this pool of Bethesda is just as much his father's house as the temple is. And Jesus is there, not because he's in need of healing, not because anybody called for him, but he seeks the lowest places. And here he is. So we meet now this guy who has been... It says, an invalid for 38 years. Now, some translations say that he has an infirmity or he's ill. Mine says an invalid. I looked at the Greek, and all it simply means is it's somebody who is without strength. His strength is gone, which means I like the word invalid a lot because invalid, um, the the word val, V-A-L, means strength. So an invalid is somebody who does not have strength. He's lost his strength. You think of valor. Somebody who has valor is somebody who's very strong and courageous. Or you think of value. It has strong worth. And so here we have an invalid who is without strength. And then Jesus begins to talk to him in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? <laughs> now, what kind of a question is that, really? Do you, do you like lying around here in Skid Row? Do you want to be healed? But it's actually not a poor question. Because you will know when you talk to people who have different things going on in their lives they may not be physically disabled but inside there's a paralysis of their heart of their soul and you talk to issues in their life and you get the sense real quick that they complain about it but they don't actually want to do anything about it they don't actually want to be made well and maybe jesus senses this in human nature and asks do you want to be made well because i will help you be made well Or it could also be something along the lines of the way we would sit down with somebody in a situation and say, tell me your story, what are you about? Mike right? tells Jesus a story. Now, what's interesting in verse 7 is that his answer is not much of an answer, but it sounds like an excuse. It sounds defensive. It sounds like this man is very aware of the fact that he is without strength in life. He's an invalid, and he somehow needs to make himself sound better. Like, it's not my fault I'm in this situation. So, he answers, verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Do you think I want to be in this situation? Obviously not, but I can't do anything about it. Well, Jesus said to him, verse 8, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Dun, 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 dun. Always brings up a problem. You notice Jesus does a lot of healings on the Sabbath. He wants to make a point to the Pharisees and religious leaders. And we're going to see that point come into play. So in verse 10, the Jews, and that's just a general word John uses to refer to the religious leaders, they said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, his bed is just a little mat, of straw, something you would take to the beach. Hold it up with one hand. Ooh, that's exhausting. However, he's breaking one of their 39 laws regarding the Sabbath, one of which said you cannot carry a burden. So his straw bed mat is a burden. He's carrying it. They see him. Hey, hey hey, you're breaking the Sabbath. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, this guy's always shifting blame, isn't he? That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Don't you just love how Jesus, so far in John's Gospels, just very, like, underneath the radar. Just does miracles, without any flash, without any show. Just, hey, get up and walk. And then he's like, the guy gets up and looks, where did he go? (laughs) Jesus, like, pops out of the crowd and goes back in the crowd. Just little surprise healings. In verse 14, afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Ah, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, you could get crazy here and say, ah, so sin makes us have physical disabilities. But that's not true as the book of Job goes on and on for some 40 chapters letting us know that God does not give us retribution for every little deed we do. However, it is possible that the mistakes we make in life can lead to physical ailments. And it is very possible, based on what Jesus says here, that this man was in the condition he was for 38 years, like Israel, because of a decision that he made. Maybe, and this is very common sense in real life, if we want to become drug addicts, well, there is going to be consequences that come with that. So don't take this to say, oh my gosh, every time I sin, something's going to happen to me. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is giving this man liberty. He's saying, hey, you have permission to sin no more. You don't have to continue in whatever it was that you were doing. You are free because you are worth more than what you have been feeling. So verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him? Now, this guy is either really dumb or he is really on the side of the religious leaders and saying, yeah, who is this guy telling me to carry my bed on the Sabbath? Don't get me in trouble, please. I will inform you who it was that broke the Sabbath rule. It was Jesus. So, this guy's a little hard to like, isn't he? He might be riding on Jesus, but we're not certain... All we know is that if you contrast his healing with the blind man in chapter 9, which we'll see in a few weeks, that blind man stands up to the religious leaders, and he is willing to be thrown out of the synagogue to say, Jesus healed me, and it was right for him to do so. But this man almost seems like he's trying to save his skin, and he's like, okay, I will tell you who healed me, just don't get me in trouble for breaking the Sabbath. And so he informs so, verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. This is, exact, this is what he wanted it to come to, a conversation. Sometimes you have to get this to happen to get these religious leaders to see their ways. And he tells them, in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. Okay, so... God told Israel to work six days a week and on the seventh day to take a rest because it modeled after his creating the world. However, God keeps working because he's the one sustaining the universe. He's the one that keeps the world going and everything living while we stop working. And the point is that we learn that we're not God and that he is, that we can stop our work and the world carries on just fine. So, God has been working. He's sustaining the universe. He's taking care of us. And then Jesus says, as God is working on the Sabbath, and always has been, I'm working on the Sabbath. In other words, very subtly suggesting, I can work on the Sabbath because I'm God. I can do this. Well, now they're upset with him for two reasons. So, verse 18 this is why the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, he's breaking religious traditions and he is blaspheming. That's the way they see it. Verse 19. A long discussion. Jesus doing all the talking. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him, God, who sent me, has eternal Zoe. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to Zoe. Truly, truly, 25, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, because the future is in Jesus, Jesus right there in their midst, so this hour is now here in me, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has Zoe in himself So he has granted the son also to have Zoe in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of Zoe and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Two resurrections will happen when Jesus returns. The righteous, the wicked. The righteous will inherit the Zoe life of God forever and ever. They will be with him. But the wicked will get judgment. So there we see this picture of two resurrections and Jesus will be judging. He will be part of that process. Separating the sheep from the goats, if you will. Now in verse 30. Jesus is going to talk about witnesses. Um, I'm not doing all this on my own. The Jewish law says you need two or more witnesses to establish something. So Jesus is going to say, hey, what I have to say is valid. It's true because others are witnessing to it. So verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is deemed true. I'm sorry, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, the baptizer, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent to me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Whew, scathing critique there to the religious leaders. So far to catch you up. Jesus said in a lot of words, a lot of parallelisms, the Jews spoke in parallels a lot, one line and repeating it in a different way. Um, He basically said to this point, two witnesses so far, the Father is my witness, John the baptizer is my witness, now we're looking for the third witness. 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal Zoe, and it is... They that bear witness about me. So the scriptures. Yet you refuse to come to me. That you may have Zoe. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Ouch. I have come in my father's name. And you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name. You will receive him. Someone who receives glory from men. (laughs) 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, and on whom you have set all your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? So there you have it. God the Father, John the Baptizer, and the Scriptures, and Moses. Moses being the the, the person behind the Scriptures, because he wrote them. So, uh, those are the three witnesses that Jesus says attribute to him. I am the Son of God. But they don't believe, he says in verse 44, because they are eager to receive glory from one another. And don't see glory from God. It's interesting that we see all of this happening on the Sabbath. Recall that Jesus is doing signs, which is a special kind of miracle that is meant to point to something. For John, in his telling of the life of Jesus, it's the Zoe life of God. It's the new creation that God is working. John opens up, in the beginning, like Genesis was the word. And then he talks about the things that Jesus is doing, seven signs he's working, these creative miracles. They're pointing to the new creation, the Zoe life that God is bringing to people. And we've seen two of them. This here is the third sign that we've read. This bringing this paralyzed man and making him walk. The third sign. So it's pointing us to what the new creation is like. It's like the paralyzed. It's like the outsider, the invalid, having life restored to him. But furthermore, this is happening on the Sabbath. Because the Zoe life of God is also the Sabbath. Not the kind of Sabbath that religious leaders and rulers try to make us do and keep, but the kind of Sabbath that God always intended to invite people into as a place of rest. And in fact, the Jews themselves, apart from their strict leaders, there have been a lot of writings even before and after Jesus that talk about the Sabbath as a picture or a window into the next world to come, the new creation of God. Let me read to you this one story that comes from one of the Jewish writings. It says this, at the time when God was giving the Torah, the law, the first five books of Moses, to Israel, he said to them, my children, if you accept the Torah, my law, and observe my Sabbath, I will give you for all eternity a thing most precious that I have in my possession. And what, asked Israel, is that most precious thing which you will give us if we obey you? The world to come, God answered. Well, show us in this world an example of that world to come. And God said, the Sabbath is an example of the world to come. The Sabbath sometimes is thought of as a day of laziness. And that's when we definitely don't understand what the Sabbath meant (coughs) to God and his intention for that day of rest. It wasn't a day to put your feet up and be lazy all day, because frankly, no one would look forward to that. Unless you have some Netflix to catch up on. It might be okay for a while, but literally all day, like you can't even pick up a mat. Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. So... The the Sabbath was not meant to be laziness. The goal of the Sabbath was liberation. It was meant to give humanity permission to stop working at least for a seventh of their time and have fun. To realize that I am not a slave to the things I do with my hands. Or the thing I'm trying to make myself in this world. I'm not a slave to that. There is a moment in time when I can be generous and giving. When I can stop defining myself by what I do and start defining myself by who I am in God. It's a day to free ourselves. And that was the goal. But the religious leaders turned it into a rule to be kept. Always what religion does is it takes the glorious God and with all of its doctrines and definitions and rules and regulations and limitations, it narrows the almighty God into something human beings can hold in their hands. Jesus was saying, nope, I'm about liberating invalids. Interesting, isn't it? That the man who's healed is called an invalid. The word invalid is actually Not valid. Valid being something that has strength or worthiness. But to be an invalid, to not be valid, is to not have strength or any kind of worthiness. And this man who had been there at the pool for 38 years has been living as someone who is not valid. And I fear that we all live in life. Somewhere we're born and we're like all confident who we are. It's cute little babies because the world loves us, right? But then we grow up and we start to realize I'm not a very valid person. I feel less than the people around me. And we make life all about trying to validate ourselves. Trying to find that stamp of approval, of validation. We go around and try to make something of ourselves. But working for validation does not heal. Please hear that. Working for validation does not heal your soul. It will not give you Zoe life. You will still be paralyzed. Because every time we beat, we act like this invalid here and we try to be the best and try to beat everybody to the pool first and be healed first, every time we make every effort that we can to validate ourselves, someone else steps in before us. There will always be someone in that pool of validation before you can get there. Always. You will never be first. You will never be the best. But this is the problem, is that we're trying to find validation by being the first, by being the best, by trying to accomplish something. But all this person could say was, I can't do it. Every time I try, someone else is better than me. We need to learn to find validation somewhere else. And it's not in my works. It's not in my efforts. It's not in my strength. Because I'm without strength. My validation has to come from God. Which is just another way of saying what Paul has been telling us in his letters. We are justified by faith in Jesus justified is the same thing saying you're made valid in the eyes of god you're validated by faith in his son because of what jesus has done we don't have to validate ourselves anymore and he was saying that in the face of the jewish religious leaders who were saying you have to do this and that circumcision and sabbath keeping in order to be valid before god and he says no god validates us And Jesus says the same thing in this passage. If you look at verse 44 again, he accuses them and says, How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Glory in the Greek is doxa. You guys know the word doxology? You may not know what it means, but you've heard it. (laughs) Or orthodoxy. Uh, Doxa is usually translated glory. But what it means, and what glory, glory's not really an American, like, I don't know, we say old glory, like we fly old glory, but glory isn't really like a vernacular we use all the time. Glory simply means splendor, power, and praise. God is glory because he is splendid, he's beautiful, he's worthy of our praise and honor, he's powerful and almighty. That's why he is doxa, he has glory. But listen to what all these things are. Splendor, power, praise. For someone who is invalid, who has no strength, doxa is what you need for validation. And where do the religious leaders go for their validation? They go to one another. You receive glory. You receive doxa from one another. Oh, you're such a smart scholar there, Pete. Oh, Melvin, you keep the Sabbath wonderfully. They're exchanging doxa to one another because of what they do, because of what they've accomplished. And yet Jesus says, you don't believe because of that. You're not receiving doxa from God. So what I think John would like us to do as he's telling us about this miracle, this third sign, is to realize that the Sabbath means that we can enter that now by receiving doxa, validation, worth, strength, acceptance. We can receive that from God by receiving his love for us. I don't have to keep the Sabbath. I don't have to work my way into validation. The Sabbath isn't something I keep. It's something I enter. It's something I become. It's what Jesus is and it's what he's offering. It's the pool of healing. And he says, come, I have it ready for you. I will give that to you. I will bring that water to you. I'm not expecting you to crawl and slither your way to it on your own. No, I want to give you doxa. I want to give you validation. Don't Work for it. Sabbath it. Rest in it. Receive it. That's what I want of you. And look, when we understand this, it works out so much better. And we're able to live in the Sabbath. But when we don't, when we seek validation from others, what we happens is we enslave ourselves to rules and to rivalry. We have to receive doctrine from each other because, well, if I keep the rules right, if I listen to the right music, and if I don't do that, and if I do this, I, this peer pressure thing in the Christian community, if, if I do the right things, I will receive validation. But look, that only produces rivalry. Trying to keep rules for validation, it brings rivalry about who is more valid than the other based upon the stupid rules you're keeping. That doesn't make sense. But when I receive validation and doxa from the Father, from Jesus, from God, then I'm able to live in rest and resurrection. Because I'm no longer competing with you about who is more doxologized than the other. (laughs) I'm being received by the Father. And this is what love does. Love tears down the competition. It tears down the rivalry. It tears down the rules. And it says, acceptance, I love you. I will give you the affirmation that you need. That's why Jesus said, I know in verse 42, I know that you do not have the love of God within you because they need doxa from one another. We will never be healed until we receive it from God and that's when we can rest that's when we will truly be in the Sabbath and that is the kind of Zoe life that he says we'll be resurrected to so brothers and sisters let it go let God give you the validation that you need you were never asked to validate yourself And please don't, as it's only going to cause rivalry and rules in our midst. We want resurrection and rest.